0: Hi, I'm Sam Brake Gear, and welcome to Brains Bite Back. This is the podcast dedicated to all things technology, psychology, and society-related. If you're anything like me, then you're probably a huge fan of Mr. Robot. In my opinion, there isn't a show out there that merges psychology and technology in such a visually entertaining way, and an incredible plot and fascinating characters. That's why I wanted to dedicate this episode of the podcast to understand how realistic the show is from a technological perspective and a psychological perspective. To do this, I'm joined by two experts. My first guest joins me to examine the accuracy of the hacking techniques used on the show. He's the founder and CEO of Raxis, a penetration testing company of ethical hackers, Mark Puckett. And to discuss the psychological elements of the show, I'm joined by a clinical psychologist and mental health expert, who is also the executive director of Innovation 360, an outpatient group of counselors and therapists helping patients overcome a variety of mental health issues, Kevin Gilliland. Now, if you haven't seen all of Mr. Robot or any of it, then maybe you should have a sit down and question the choices you've been making in your life. But in all seriousness, there are spoilers, so you have been warned. And for our Weird Wide Web piece, we will look at a study that attempts to quantify the perceived financial value of online privacy and data across a number of countries. This episode is brought to you by Publicize. Publicize is a digital PR company that stands out from other legacy agencies. They don't charge large retainers or simply send out press releases when you have something to announce. Instead, they have a transparent and modular approach to PR that ensures you only pay for what you need. They refer to this approach as growth communications for everyone, and it makes them the default option for tech startups looking to take their first steps in PR. If you want more information, you can request a free PR assessment at publicize.co and find a tailored PR strategy that works for you. And exclusively for brainspike Back listeners, for a limited time only, those who sign up for a 12-month package will receive one month free. To claim this promotion, visit publicize.co slash BBB. Mark.
1: Hello, it's Mark, yes, hi, how are you?
0: Yeah, I'm very good, thanks, I'm very good. Uh, how are you doing today?
1: I'm not, not too bad at all. Just been reading up on some Mr. Robot stuff, getting ready for this, uh, this chat, but
0: yeah, doing great. And I'm glad you were um, brushing up on your your Mr. Robot knowledge. I have to admit, I recently finished the fourth season, so I'm completely caught up. Good. But I haven't seen the first season, second season since they came out, which has been a few years. So my knowledge of them is a bit rusty, but there's still definitely some hacks in there, which I'm like, how did they do that? Or like, is that even possible? So I'm really happy to have you on this show. Uh, how much have you seen? You're a big fan of it, right? I'm a big
1: fan. I've seen all of them as well, uh, all the way through the end. Um, it definitely mixes, you know, some really realistic, Hacks with uh, some some geopolitical type things that are going on uh, as well. I think it's just a very creative show.
0: Yeah, I I definitely have to say that there's no other show that I've come across which, for me, really taps into so many areas of just I don't know, just interesting stuff. It just it really does keep me keep me addicted. Would you be able to for our listeners tell us who you are and what you do?
1: Certainly, yes. My name is Mark Mark uh, Mark Puckett. I'm the CEO of Raxus, and we are a penetration testing company. We, we actually, buy hire, so the companies will hire us to do this, our customers will hire us to try to break in. Um, we break in via physical and social engineering techniques or fully uh, data techniques as well where we're doing it from home you know, remotely over the internet or possibly remotely uh, through a device that allows us to get access to their internal network acting like a malicious uh, insider in that case. So different, some different scenarios, but we actually act as um, a white hat hacker, if you will, to, to break into them. And then our reports are used to help our customers improve their security.
0: Awesome. I feel like I've definitely got the best guest possible for, uh, for this episode and this segment. You fill me with confidence, (laughs) but um, I'd love to, yeah, get started and just say like, what, are off the top of your head some of the most realistic hacks that you have seen in Mr. Robot? So my
1: favorite hack is actually the Steel Mountain scene. So Steel Mountain, you know, the company is is very much like another real company that does a very similar operation, uh, basically where they do, you know, data storage uh, for backups for companies to have like off-site storage. Um, there's a hack there where they actually try to get into the the facility, which is a highly secure facility, and they use uh, a couple different hack- hacking techniques to get through there. Um, the first one I noticed, and actually we do a lot of that with my company Rexis as well, um, they actually clone a badge uh, in a coffee shop near the near one of their offices so that you know one of the employees is there, he's got his badge on, he's getting coffee. And I believe it's Elliot that, that runs into him and bumps into him with a bag or maybe it's Mr. robot, but he ends up into cloning his his badge and able to you know to, to actually re, to basically print that badge back out on, a, on another another, another plastic, piece of plastic that they can use later. Um, we do a ton of that in what we do as well, and it's uh, it's still very valid today. So yeah, so also with the Steel Mountain one, another one I thought was extremely realistic because we, we we do a lot of this, um, was the, the point where he um, found a Raspberry Pi and was able to pull a thermostat off the wall and basically push it push it behind the thermostat uh, and get it plugged into the network um, where he could then wirelessly uh, or some other means uh, get access to the, the thermostat network. Those thermostats are PLCs and the PLCs are, are rarely patched, uh, and but they're also often off of the, the standard networks, so you can't really access them too easily from the outside. If you can put something in there to kind of bridge that gap, right, you'll be able to access that remotely or possibly through a tunnel that goes out the internet. Um, we do a ton of that. We use a BeagleBone device instead of the Raspberry Pi, but it's a very similar type single small board. Um, and we'll, um, for for example, internal pen tests will mail that to them and, and ask them to plug it in because we're acting like a malicious insider. Or if we're doing a um, social engineering attack like in, in this Mr. Robot episode, we will show up to the, the, the business office and try to talk our way in to use social engineering techniques, which is similar to what they did in this case and and, and convinced uh, somebody there that they were a Tech billionaire by modifying some some uh, Wikipedia entries and basically was able to get it, to get a tour of the facility and then drop off this device. We we do exactly the same thing.
0: Yeah, I would love to move on to the social engineering side of things because for me that is by far the most interesting. It's only because. I'm not the most technical person in the sense of like the nuts and bolts of technology, but this podcast is all about technology and psychology and psychology really is my strength. So whenever I see it being implemented, I I love that fusion of like social engineering mixed with technology. I think it's so intelligent. And it also, it's kind of like, it it has one of the best scenes, which I think just really shows like the strength of Elliot's personality when he's saying to that guy, that guy won't give him access, and he just emotionally crushes this guy and it like finishes with him saying, you need to, I can't remember exactly what it is, but you need to find me someone that matters because you don't. And the guy is basically almost in tears and he runs off and gets him. I mean, it's horrible, it's painful to watch, but at the same time, it helps Elliot achieve his goal. It's effective. I mean, would you be able to elaborate or expand a bit more on the social engineering techniques that you, we've mentioned used on Mr. Robot?
1: Yeah, so I mean, th- th- what he did was exactly very realistic. People always want to do well, right? They want to do their job right, and they want to help each other. Um, and, and so in that case, you know, yeah, he made him feel pretty bad, but he, but he was able to obtain his goal, and, and that's, that's exactly social engineering. It's, it's, I could give you examples that we've done that, that are like that, but another part of Mr. Robot that happened, uh, like Darlene, for example, there's, a, there's another hack where uh, Elliot needs to break into a, a laptop instead of, of a police car. And there's a, basically a Bluetooth keyboard in there and he needs to get access to that. Well, the, the, well, the police officer was in the car. So, you know, Darlene uh, walks up to the car and starts trying to talk to the officer and distracting him from actually seeing what's on the screen through chatting with him and appearing very sexy and that kind of thing. And that's very realistic.
0: Yeah. I think that also leads on to one of the questions I wanted to ask you regarding the hack which stayed with me the most. So, like I said, it's been a while since I've seen it, but the one which I just cannot forget is when Elliot hacks the prison and lets all the prisoners out in order to try and like save his girlfriend. But this to me was the one where I was like, is this really possible? This seems like a step too far. Surely you can't hack a prison and just open up all the doors. Is this possible? And how would you do this?
1: Sadly, it's it's possible. Say it's difficult. Certainly yes. but but definitely I would say it's not impossible to do that. The, the technique I believe they used that they used a, a Bluetooth keyboard attack to where they, they were able to take over a keyboard and and use that machine that apparently had access to the same network as the, the PLCs, which are programmable logic controllers that are controlling the, the doors of the, the prison. And I believe they, they set like an alarm or emergency command to it to tell it to open up all, all the doors. Normally you would, when designing something like that, you would design it where the, the PLCs were on a different network than possibly a police car network or maybe an office uh, network. Um, I think that that was also attempted with, with a USB drop earlier in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the show that, that failed. But yeah, if, they, if you do have access to that network, then usually those PLC devices are not patched often. You know, they're, they're, they are they're were put in years ago and, and forgotten about, frankly. And so as new exploits come out, they're usually quite vulnerable to it.
0: Maybe you don't need to necessarily stay in your case if you can't mention it, I understand. But do law enforcement and like prisons, do they often use the services that you provide or similar services which maybe other companies provide?
1: Yes, yes, yeah. so they'll, they'll use somebody like us uh, or us to help and you know to find those errors that they're making with their design and we can help them improve that for sure that they and they do but not all of them do um often limited budgets right and this is a very costly test so it's often you know bypassed for other other things
0: i only ask because uh i like to be able to sleep well at night (laughs) it's good to know that that's fiction and actually tests and uh proper regulations are followed to make sure this thing doesn't happen especially now that i've you've told me that oh it's possible with the right kind of hacker but still
1: (laughs) yeah so yeah so one thing that, that i thought was a little bit exaggerated but you know i think i believe that artistic license is something you can take especially with a show like this as long as it makes makes sense right and so like for example the bluetooth attack they did there's a big part where you have to crack the uh, Bluetooth encryption key, and often that's a very long key and, and, and very difficult to crack. It would take, you know, at, at least at least days if you have a really high high performance type um, system. And then even then, it may not even crack. And and often, if it's a doesn't, you know, if it's a really good key, it could be almost impossible. Um, they kind of skip through that part and speed it up quite a bit, but the concept itself is sound for sure.
0: And moving on to perhaps one of the questions which i'm most curious to know about what aspects of the show when it comes to hacking do you think are false or over exaggerated from what you've seen
1: um i think the only thing like i mentioned is the speed sometimes they will speed through things that um often will get stuck on and take much longer to try to break these these keys and passwords Uh, also failing Um, there are many things we, we do to break in for example this bluetooth keyboard thing would often take us four or five iterations of something else that we would try to get to get in. And after like four or five failures, we'll, one will actually work. You know, for the show's point, they're trying to get through things pretty quickly. So they go straight to the, the hack that works the first time. And that's that's kind of rare, I think, in reality. However, everything I've seen them do, uh, it, it certainly is similar to what we've done.
0: Awesome, I, there's a, a Reddit post that I remember, and it said something really funny along the lines of, um... Most of the time in in media or films, it's always the same thing. Like hacking is so completely distorted. Yeah. Someone someone added a description saying like uh, types keyboard frantically, eyes dart across the screen. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes. And I, I was about to tell you exactly that. And you, you already took took it out of my mouth. Is that that's what I see as well. Other shows is like okay, I'm hacking in, click 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 click. I've got access to the the main system. hack. <laughs> And then oh oh they're oh, they're 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 pushing back on me. there's a firewall, oh no I, 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 oh no, I bypassed the firewall now I'm in, yeah, right, and that that is not even close to true,
0: yeah, and uh, that's why it fills me with like real elation. I'm really hit glad to hear that Mr. Robot is accurate more or less in um, its hacking techniques because the whole show overall is, is really fantastic. So I could easily watch the whole show from start to finish and probably be relatively unaware of how accurate it was. But to hear that it is accurate and that it's also a great show, like I can enjoy it that much more knowing, oh, they've done their research. It's not a case of, oh, let's just do a show about a hacker and we'll just fill in the blanks. So so that's, that's good to know.
1: Yeah, well, I want to just mention on the, on the prison hack, one more thing. Um, Darlene tries to hack it first, right before um, Elliot gets in and she, she uses a, a prepackaged exploit. And they even mentioned it came from Rapid 9, which is similar to other another company that creates um, uh, exploit type code. And so yes, yeah, she, she does she uses this Rapid nine thing and deploys it and it fails and gets caught by antivirus uh, and stops it. That also is very realistic.
0: Awesome. Yeah, if there is one thing, there was, there was one hack that I really wanted to discuss with you. And it's like the final one. And don't worry, I've already said at the intro of this episode that there's going to be spoilers. So if anyone is listening, they haven't already watched it all, then uh, they've got their homework sorted out before they listen to this episode. But at the end, when they hacked Cyprus National Bank, how possible is that? Because for me, that was another one where I was like... Surely, that would be an impossible hack, like taking that much money from that many people, and there must be so many like uh, so many other layers of security in place before you could take what seems to be the largest sum of money in existence in the world. Do you think that theoretically that would be possible, or do you see any kind of potential flaws in that plan
1: so i can i can 't recall exactly the the techniques they used to get access to the Cyprus National Bank in the beginning to, to, to grab, back, grab all the different accounts and whatnot, but I can tell you that we have done numerous banks um, and we have gotten access to, uh, to funds and we're able to transfer funds and that's actually part of our proof of concept. So, so yes, certainly possible. I don't, I, I can't remember how much detail they provided on that hack. I do know the hack you're talking about, but I cannot recall exactly what they did to get the, um, the hack to work.
0: That's oh, sorry, I can't help you either, unfortunately.
1: <laughs> um, but I, but I can tell you that that banks in general do have weaknesses. They're they're actually better than a lot of the other you know organizations I've been out, been seen out there. Often, for example, the transfer of money above a certain amount, often takes two user accounts and often two-factor, uh, uh, which is you know you know your password and something else like a token and whatnot to to get access to to transfer funds. However, we usually just hack two people and, and do it that way.
0: Do you have any more thoughts or anything else that you wanted to share regarding the show? I mean, you've cleared up pretty much uh, all the questions I've had. And yeah, I, I'm pretty sold on the fact that this is a show which has done its research and has done a fairly good job of presenting the world of hacking to me, especially as a novice. But is there anything else you'd like to add?
1: I mean, I, I know that I did some, some quick research on this too. And they have a whole team of people that, that go out and find the real hacks uh, and base the the writing on it. I think they do a phenomenal job. It's a great show. Definitely nothing else uh, like it out there. Um, so if you're into that, that you know, political mixed with uh, true technology, it's definitely the show to watch.
0: Yeah, 100. percent If people want to follow you, Mark, how can they? How can they keep in touch if they want to know more about your business? Do you have social media or is there any website you want to promote?
1: Yeah, so we're at raxus.com is my business. We do you know the penetration testing services there. Um, check it out. And if you're, if you're, you know, you have a company or even if it's a medium sized company or even smaller, you know, companies are being attacked all the time. And it's best to have somebody like us go in there and try to attack you first, see where your issues are and hopefully we'll help you fix, fix them before the bad guys get there.
0: Definitely. Awesome. Mark, thank you so much. Um, it's been a real pleasure. And I've really enjoyed this chat. Right,
1: thank you very much. Appreciate it.
0: Hey Kevin, how you doing? Good. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm not too bad. I'm not too bad. Thank you. Oh, very. Thank you for joining me. Yeah. I basically uh, this is an episode I've been wanting to do for a while because I'm a big fan of Mr. Robot. I've
2: haven't caught all of the episodes, but uh, he's just one. He's a tremendous actor, and it's really well written.
0: Yeah. It seems like you've you've definitely seen enough to know what like uh, what we're here to talk about today, and. I would really love to start off by allowing you to introduce yourself for our listeners so they have an understanding of who you are and why I've called you up to talk about this today.
2: Yeah, Kevin Gilliland, Executive Director at Innovation360, and we do intensive outpatient mental health and drug and alcohol treatment. And so we work with, we actually end up working with a lot of pretty severe and pretty chronic and high acuity, meaning pretty severe complex individuals. We've just always had somewhat of a knack for doing that kind of work. And so, you know, you look up after 15, 20 years of doing that and one challenging client leads to an entire practice full of them. And so, you know, where we see and and talking about dissociative symptoms or even diagnoses, when you step into the world of drug and alcohol use, it's not uncommon to see them there. And it's also not uncommon to see it with folks that have been involved in psychiatric treatment for some time and feel stuck, if you will. So we, we see a, a decent amount of it and it is one of those challenging diagnoses and also fascinating to really appropriately diagnose.
0: I think one of the reasons why I wanted to, to speak with you about this is because I think there's many perhaps misconceptions around it. I remember being at university and I remember us touching on the topic or being taught the topic of disassociative identity disorder. And I remember them saying, like, uh, it's, it's somewhat rare. And I also remember them saying that it's not always like in the films. And I think that in the films, they portray it. And it's commonly got this term, which I don't believe is uh, particularly accurate. I remember my teacher saying split personality or split personality disorder. Yeah. One, because that kind of suggests that you just have two personalities when really it's, it's, it's not as clear as, oh, today I'm this person, oh, I'm the other person, and you're just these two people. But they did say that the media kind of distorts it, so it's not as clear as, like, Fight Club or as, like, Mr. Robot. Yes. Would you be able to explain what is disassociative dissociative identity disorder for our listeners and give a clear overview?
2: Yeah, and I'll start with one of the, the last things you said, you know, that it's been portrayed in the media kind of in these extreme ways that so we don't really see it. I, I wish – this is one of these embarrassing parts of, of healthcare, but I wish we could just blame the media, but honestly – The the healthcare field itself, it really has struggled with this as a diagnosis. It's one of the older ones, actually, when you read the old, dead, early psychiatric folks, they were often fascinated by this, what seemed to be this split personality or this alter personality. And it's funny as as they described it then, they also started talking about how, and, and sort of teasing out the path, you go from that to. People that will sometimes experience really severe traumatic events, like if you think about military types of things or first responder types of things, where we will convert conversion disorders, where we'll convert our psychiatric pains and symptoms into physical expression. So we won't be able to move our arm. It may be this sort of shutting down, whether it's the body or part of the internal psyche, if you will. And you're right. It is a rare diagnosis, but back in, I want to say it was about the late 80s, early 90s, it got to be one of those things that you had a lot of physicians and therapists that were looking for it. And it was got to be sort of one of those fascinating vogue things. Well, we way overdiagnosed it instead of anchoring ourselves to, okay, what does the data actually say to us about that? for about five or six years. I mean, it it really is one of those embarrassing chapters of mental health history where a lot of people had entire practices of clients that were multiple personalities and you had psychiatric hospitals that would have 60 or 70 beds devoted to multiple person. Okay, that's ridiculous. It does not happen that frequently. And what you end up with is some psychiatrically ill patients That some of it is, okay, if you've got this healthcare person looking for it and asking you questions about it, it's kind of maybe our fault that you're starting to act this way, which is a fancy way of saying iatrogenic, which means it's our fault. We've kind of created this in you because you're psychologically vulnerable. But with all that noise settling in, what you do tend to see is actually when you think about Mr. Robot, if you don't think about this alter personality, but if you just look at him, Malik, as he's sort of acting, it's these subtleties of just sort of moving in and out of different sort of moods or I'd say personalities because it's where you see truly separate identities. There is some research and some evidence to suggest that that can happen in some rare cases, but you don't see these, you know, florid, flamboyant switches. What you end up seeing are these just subtle shifts into and out of different sort of qualities and attributes and experiences. And that he, he portrays really well. And almost all of them, uh, people that end up with this, and it is rare, the vast majority, like 75%, are the result of really traumatic sexual abuse or physical abuse, those types of truly horrific situations. And what you end up with is instead of having this whole person that's completely sort of together, you end up with these sort of underdeveloped aspects of a personality. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I understand.
2: You know, when we're adults and we get mad and say something, you know, what we tend to say when we're apologizing is, man, I'm sorry. That's just, I don't know why I said that. that's just not me. I, I'm just not like that. Well, no, actually you are. I, I am like that. I'm like that when I don't sleep and I'm hungry. I just act like a different person. Okay, well, I'm not a different person, but that is part of me. I just can act and think and feel very differently. If you take that to the extreme, like extreme, extreme, and it's almost always when children are little, five, six years old, that you'll see that develop. So that's the identity. That's several identities. Now, a quick thought, and I'll come back to it, is what we see is far more common are more isolated events, like an accident where people were killed and you were involved and you were close, or school shootings or or these public shootings that we see now especially in the states or rape th- those type of single events or incidents that is far more common for us to if you will disassociate we just it's it's actually a coping mechanism because it is such an overwhelming emotional sensory it overloads our body mind and soul and so there's a bit of it that that's this adaptive coping because we have no other way to manage the situation other than to get some quote distance from it. Those experiences are far more common.
0: Yeah. I, I, I'd be interested to know as well. Obviously in the case of Mr. Robot, he doesn't know uh, that that he is Mr. Robot. So he he's obviously seeing his own personality outside of his own body. And obviously that's the same in fight club. So there's, there's two things, two questions I have here. Is there, any type of chance that patients that do suffer from this um, DID that they hallucinate and see their other personality doing things, and it's actually them, or it's not them, or they're just speaking with them. And again, what is the relationship like with memory? Because of course, in Mr. Robot and Fight Club, a separate personality supposedly does things, and they don't remember it, and they don't have any recollection. How accurate is that? Do patients uh, have problems with their memory when their supposed other personalities or this other kind of like side of them comes out? And do they ever hallucinate and visually see this person in in their lives?
2: Yeah, let's start with the last one first because it's easier. Um, when we dissociate or have an experience that is or if in its most severe case ends up being a, a sort of a separate personality, it is not unusual for people to have some Vague, yes, I know that happened, but I don't remember a single detail. I was literally two days ago, I was talking with two colleagues who were doing some work with trauma with a lady that had been sexually assaulted. And she had done some really good clinical work. And she said, she had always said, I don't remember a single thing about the details. Now, this was a woman that had finished college, had been successful in her career, but she had been wrestling with other symptoms. I would say, result of this event that were more like mood and anxiety. And she had talked about being sexually assaulted and had always said, I just, I don't remember a thing about it, like nothing about, well, as we started stepping into work with her um, and going through some, some clinical pieces, like by the time I was about a nine or 10 session piece of walking her through it, she remembers what she was wearing. She remembers the color of the bra that she was wearing. She remembered, but it was that, it's if you will, you can. Uh, there is an element of the dissociative that is protective to our mind, to our psyche. And so it's not unusual for people to either remember, yeah, I know that event happened, but God, I don't remember any of the details or to talk about it various ways like that on some occasions it tends to be closer to the event. Sometimes people will have no recollection at all um, and literally be confused and just not recall being there or that happening. That sometimes happens as well. So yes, that that I think they've done a really good job of showing on the show. Now, the visual hallucinations, the, actually visual are the most, they're one of the most rare of hallucinations we see with psychiatric illness. What's far more common are hearing voices um, and voices in our head. And so with with dissociative symptoms or disorders, most like, uh, I'll stop just short of saying you never, they never have visual hallucinations. Visual hallucinations are actually pretty rare, even in people with schizophrenia. If we have actually, if we have visual, visual hallucinations, the odds are it's something else, like a medication reaction. I've worked with people that have used pain medications and had an adverse reaction, and they had visual hallucinations. That's actually more common than a psychiatric diagnosis. So, yeah, they kind of missed on that, but it is wildly entertaining.
0: Yeah, I definitely think it adds to the visual element. (laughs) I'm I'm definitely willing to just delay or, like, ignore the fact that perhaps maybe it's not that accurate, psychologically speaking, just to have the the visuals. And I suppose it wouldn't really make sense if, like, you couldn't physically see Christian Slater there and, and speaking with him.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But here's what here's what I actually do love about it is because the voices Mm -hmm. have such a real quality that it's like, no, it's not my voice. It's a different voice. And and so from that perspective, representing it visually really kind of is closer to what it's like. Then, you know, we all have that internal voice, but it's usually ours. Yeah. Hopefully it's ours <laughs> that are, uh, you know, damn it, why did I do that? But, you know, just in our in our heads. So it actually is. And I hadn't thought about it this way, but it, it's actually more representative of how real that voice. It, it's no, it's a different voice that is telling me and talking to me. So from that perspective, it's actually rather keen
0: to be fair actually now that you mentioned that when i think back and i think elliot is having his conversations with mr robot whenever he's snapped back into reality it's not like he's actually verbally saying he never says anything like he's not mouth isn't moving right he just snaps back and you can tell that he's just in his own head like he's there in silence exactly so it's almost like a visual representation of what's going in his head rather than what he actually thinks he sees yes yeah
2: Yes, that's spot on. and And you notice, just like you said, he doesn't respond out loud, and it's like this subtle shift back to, okay, I'm back in the conversation. And when people have had that kind of traumatic experience, that's what they'll do with other people and even in sessions is that you can see, and I, I talk about that with different clients that I, that I see that struggle with that or have had some experiences. You see him kind of leave. That's what anxiety and it's funny. While he's not as aware of his dissociation, he is aware of his social anxiety, his mood problems and his opiates. But he doesn't see that other piece because it's so closely woven into his concept of who he is, his identity, if you will.
0: My last question to you would be, what is the process for treating this? So say, for example, if you do have a rare case where someone, they demonstrate a dissociative kind of like identity disorder case, how would you go about treating that?
2: Yeah, it's, you know, well, the first, and we touched on it earlier, is we often don't do a real good job of that clinically. Um, I, I would say, you know, step into treatment. If you know something happened and you know it's significant, and you have enough of awareness that it just keeps coming up, even though you don't know the details of it, that's letting you know that for some reason your mind can't let go of that. And now it doesn't mean that you've, quote, repressed this horrendous thing, but if you've been through something horrendous, our minds often do that so that we can actually make it through that event, But they sometimes keep doing that when it's not necessary, like five years later, 10 years later. And so what happens is we may have other symptoms. We may have mood or anxiety, or we might abuse substances. And so if that's the case, I would say go talk to somebody because that is one of the most effective treatment interventions is counseling. Medications are typically used to treat the consequences, if you will, some of the mood and some of the anxiety. So one step into the counseling piece of it, um, hypnosis and hypnotherapy. While it's been talked about a lot, there, there's still some questionable practices and there's such variability with it. The more solid place of research is individual therapy. And it's not something that you're going to untangle in a session or five sessions, but find somebody that you can do good work with. And somebody that has some expertise and knowledge of working with trauma that can gradually step you through some different conversations and tasks and some experiential things to help tease out some of those, if you will, forgotten or hidden or sort of split off, cut off emotions and pain. So find somebody that you can talk to, work through, and just know it, it may take a little while.
0: I think that's also kind of quite well represented on the show, I guess, because Elliot has a therapist and throughout the series from like start to finish, she is by far one of the most important people in in his life. And he, he really demonstrates that throughout almost every series. She
2: does a really good job, right? Because it's this gently pushing and yet knowing when you've got to stop pushing, but never stopping so much that you don't sort of,
0: lose progress
2: yes i don't want to say force the issue but lose progress is a better way to say it yes yeah and she does a great job yes
0: i feel like just having this conversation with you has been epiphany after epiphany of me looking back on the show and be like yeah actually yeah yeah it's been really good having you on yeah that's it for now, that's that's all I've got. But um, if people do want to follow you and people want to keep up to date with what you're doing, do your social media or any website?
2: Yes, we've um, well, the place I work, Innovation Three Hundred and Sixty. You can find us at i three hundred and sixty Dallas is our main website, or Doctor underscore. Kevin G on Instagram. And those are the best places to catch me. And yeah, I thoroughly enjoy your work and your show and the weaving in of technology and psychology.
0: Thank you, Kevin. That means a lot
2: to me. I really do. I love it. It's so, it, You talk about critical. I, I say it all the time. There has never been a more critical time for us to learn how to manage our psyche and our technology. Yes. And and by the way, before I go, we got to stop blaming technology it's technology is wonderful it's it's human error that we have a problem with not technology so i love what you're doing
0: thank you man thank you that means a lot and i 100 agree one of the things that i've really woken up to with doing this podcast is the fact that we we seem to be fearful of technology or blame technology but a lot of the time it, it's like a tool like any other tool that we've experienced in our in our evolution we are just learning how to handle it. But I really do love hosting this podcast because I've got so many questions on like how the hell are we going to handle all of this now that it's like accelerating at a rate that we've, yes. like we've never experienced before. So so I really appreciate the support and it's good to hear. Fantastic. Well, keep, keep up the good work. Cheers, man. Once again, thank you to our sponsor, Publicize. If you want to find out more about their PR packages, the free resources they have available or receive a free PR assessment, you can visit their website and for a limited time only, Brains Bite Back listeners will receive one month free with a 12-month package at publicize.co. slash BBB. Weird Wide Web. According to Reuters, a recent study by the US-based think tank, the Technology Policy Institute, indicates that German Facebook users would expect the social media platform to pay them about $8 per month for sharing their contact information, while US users would only want $3.50. Differences in how much people value privacy of different data types across countries suggest that people in some places may prefer weaker rules while people in other places might prefer stronger rules. Scott Woolston, President and Senior Fellow at TPI, told Reuters Quantifying the value of privacy is necessary for conducting any analysis of proposed privacy policies, he said The article goes on to state, on average, across all the individuals who took part in the study A technology platform would have to pay consumers a monthly $8.44 to share their bank balance information $7.56 to share their fingerprint information $6.05 to read an individual's text, and $5.80 to share information on cash withdrawals. However, people only wanted to be paid $1.82 per month to share location data, and nothing to be sent advertisements via text messages. That's it for today's show. I gotta say, I really love this one. It's one of our best, but you can be the judge of that, and you can go check out our other episodes. You can find them all at sociable.co and you can, of course, follow us on our sociable YouTube channel where you'll find all our podcasts and videos. Alternatively, you can follow us on Spotify, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, now Stitcher, and a whole host of other podcasting sites. And if you're not sure where they are, go to sociable.co to find out or just simply Google Brains Bike Back. Thank you for joining. It's lovely to have you here. And until next time, take care.